Ahoy! It's your boy. Today is September 11th, and uh, ironically, I, you know, on a day that we're supposed to never forget, uh, I actually forgot to record uh, this entry. So um, this is coming a little late, and I apologize for that. <clears throat> but uh, I went to bed at 11 p.m. last night, and as I was laying there, I had this niggling sense that something was not quite right, and then it hit me. It was like that moment in the movie Home Alone where the mom's on the plane, and she sort of wakes up and goes, oh gosh, I just feel like we're forgetting something. And then she just goes, <gasps> Kevin! It was like that, but I woke up and went, <gasps> you know, I don't know, personal journal was what I shouted. <laughs> so uh, this is coming a little late, and I apologize for that, but um, but that's okay. Um, um I don't know if this is good or bad, but I just had therapy, so uh, I'm going from one hour of talking to another hour of talking, and uh, although it was a very productive session, I do I am sitting here feeling like I'm not sure if I have much to talk about. So um, although this is late, I'm also giving myself permission. If I really feel like I've, I'm spent and uh, I want to end early, I will do that, although, you know, you know, I'll also push myself a little bit and see if we get, um, yeah, a full a full hour here. Um, you know, I have to admit it's only September and the weather hasn't really turned yet. And yet, you know, for the last week I have felt the onset of my seasonal affective disorder. And I always hate saying that. I always feel a little embarrassed saying that. Um, one, because seasonal affective disorder is just awful because it's, it's acronym is SAD, which I find very infantilizing. Um, but it's true. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I, I just know that my mindset is starting to kind of change, which is like this morning I was leaving for school and I've actually been having some trouble with my bike. I had a flat tire, um, one day, uh, which prevented me from going to one lecture. And then, uh, when I fixed that, I sort of had biked home kind of later that week and I looked down and I realized my rear wheel was about to fall off. And I just thought how catastrophic would that have been? You know, the last, or sort of when I leave school, it's kind of downhill. I was like, how catastrophic would that have been if my fucking wheel fell off in the middle of riding? Um, so I sort of adjusted it. But as I was leaving this morning, I did have that thought. I was like, God damn it, like, uh, my bike sort of falling apart. And it was just one in a sequence of sort of frustrating thoughts I had had since I woke up this, that morning. And it's like, I always know that I'm getting depressed when I wake up and my my first thought is just kind of frustration and like just thinking like, oh, how am I going to get through today? And just feeling kind of beleaguered. And um, and yeah, so at that moment, I realized I was probably officially in my seasonal affective disorder. And then the, the next thought that followed was, oh, I need to start using my light. Actually, I'll turn it on right now. I have one of these, um, I was going to say UV lights. I don't think that's right, actually. Oh, excuse me, but you're supposed to have these you know, these lights that you put on and it's supposed to help you feel better. Although they've never, I don't know that I've ever noticed a meaningful difference since using them, but I have one and I use it regardless. And, uh, but yeah, my, my other frustrating thought was, ah, that piece of shit never works. And I thought, wow, I really am a curmudgeon. I really am turning into a, I don't know, a Scrooge of sorts, but, <clears throat> but so be it. I'm sorry. Actually, as I'm talking, I'm realizing my throat is pretty much cached. Normally at the end of recording one of these, I'm losing my voice, but I think after an hour of therapy and now trying to do this, I think I'll need to be on vocal rest for a little while. Um, but yeah, I was sort of talking about that in therapy where I was like, yeah, I feel the onset of the seasonal affective disorder. And I actually think it's been exacerbated. Um, I actually had my last day of work on Wednesday and uh, I had a nice send off from some coworkers, but what has been kind of percolating and uh, has kind of reared its head since um, uh, my last day is kind of a little bit of fear of the, the bumpers kind of coming out of the gutters in my life, so to speak, which is like when you're a kid and you go bowling, they'll put those bumpers in the gutters so that you never throw a gutter ball. The ball just kind of keeps going down. The, the thing is just more fun, right? Because otherwise, otherwise kids would just be chucking the ball in the gutters the entire time. So to make it more fun, they just put those kind of safeties in place. And I actually kind of approach my life that way sometimes, which is like I kind of, speaking of infantilizing, I kind of infantilize myself and um, I kind of treat myself and my, my self-talk is kind of centered around the idea that like I'm not a very capable person and that I need this kind of scaffolding or structure in my life or else 
I'll just sort of go to bits. Because I sort of tell myself, like, every impulse I have is, like, probably not good for me and self-destructive. And the spoiler alert, the plot twist, is that, is, is that, that that's actually not true at all. <laughs> um, but that's the way I sort of treat and talk to myself. And so, you know, as this, as the end of work was coming, you know, I did have this kind of fear of like, man, what are you going to do with that free time? And part of that is I've been, you know, pulling in more structure around my language study. So I got uh, the program I went to over the summer um, has reached out to all of us and offered us like continuing education for free, which is phenomenal. So I'll be picking up on that, presumably, in a couple of weeks. I also, there's like a language exchange program through my university, and there's like a language pod, a group of people that meet, meet every Friday to speak Mandarin. And so I'll be meeting with them. And also they've connected me with some language partners, which I can meet with throughout the week and practice speaking Mandarin. So, you know, I've told myself that I'll be using this time um, to do more of that stuff, which is good. And I've also been doing more music stuff. I probably mentioned like messing with synthesizers, but also spending more time in Ableton and working on music in there. Um, and, and not like really like writing songs, but just like recording song ideas and um, just trying to be free and not cerebral about it and just like have fun, which I really enjoyed, right? But along, and so that's good, right? That's a good thing. <laughs> but I have to be honest and admit that I have this other kind of like golem inside of me, which looks when, when I see myself having fun, that I start to like tear myself down a little bit. And I sort of talk shit to myself, which is like, you know, there are so many things I enjoy doing, which to me makes sense and are fun. But I feel like have to because they don't have like a, a practical purpose, or, you know, it's not like, you know, they, they just feel like they'd be very hard to justify to other people. You know, like, well, what's the value? You know, I sort of treat things like making music or even like practicing Mandarin or things like that. I treat it like playing video games or something like that, which like, you know, uh, it, it's fun for me and I see a lot of intrinsic worth in it, but I just worry that like other people looking in would look at how I'm spending my time and what I'm doing and thinking of it as like a complete waste of time. So... Yeah, even though I'm having fun, even though I'm sensibly have the ability to enjoy myself a little bit more, um, I yeah, there's a sort of uh, I don't know mounting insecurity at the same time. Um, so yeah, I think that was just kind of at the center of what I was talking about in therapy. And the real reason that that is important is because you know I I don't know if I talked about this on the sort of last installment, but, um, you know, grad school applications are kind of looming for me right now. And, uh, the one that's kind of looming the largest is this Fulbright scholarship, which is very prestigious. And if I got it, it would be great. Um, presumably, uh, it would certainly be impressive to some people. I was going to say a lot of people, I bet actually most people who stumble on this might not even have heard of Fulbright, but you know, it's just, it's, it's a kind of a prestigious thing. And so, um, I've just sort of assumed that I would go for it. It's a Mandarin-taught um, uh, graduate program at Tsinghua University in Taiwan, studying Chinese. And that's great. Tsinghua is like the number two university in Taiwan, right after Taida, or Taiwan University, which is in Taipei. And uh, But the problem is that Tsinghua is in Xinxu, which is this small town on the west side of the island. And... Um, you know, living out here in the Bay Area, we have a lot of companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and basically all the major tech companies, Apple, right? So all the major tech, tech companies in the world that you've heard of, most of them are have their home base like right up the street from me. Um, and a lot of that is centered around places like Menlo Park, which are these, they're not really cities. They're just like centers of commerce where people go to work, but nobody really, I mean, there's just nothing there, right? Um, there's no like intrinsic culture there. It's just not a very exciting place to live. It's a place to go and work, but not really a place that you would want to live. Well, that's where Tsinghua University is. And so although it all sounds good on paper and all sounds very prestigious, the idea of actually spending two years there is not very appealing to me. Because I've been, I mean, I've been there. We had like a, we had like a field trip over the summer to go to this, I don't even remember what they called it. It was like a technology museum or something like that. And that was, it was very interesting. But it literally just looked like Mountain View, California which is just businesses and like 
not much else. It just looked the, yeah, not, not a very exciting place to, to spend time in. But yeah, the idea of like spending two years there was not very appealing to me. So, you know, the last couple of weeks I've actually had a thought, well, okay, well, maybe you don't apply. You know? Um, and maybe for you, this is an obvious thing to, to sort of think about. But at the, end of the, at the end of the day, if you don't want to go there or if you don't see yourself spending time there, like, why do it? And that's a great point you bring up. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really compelling argument. And yet, the point I'm trying to make is that it just reminds me and sort of clarifies for me that actually a lot of what I feel compelled to do or the things that put pressure on myself to do actually have nothing to do with what I want to do. But like the overriding thing in my mind oftentimes is like, what should I do? Not what do I want to do, but what should I want to do? Right. And so as I'm like putting in my two weeks at work and ending my time there and giving myself more time to, um, I don't know, uh, do school things or actually to do nothing like to do music stuff or, or exercise or things that I would enjoy. It feels like the, you know, like I'm fostering this very dangerous idea of like, you know, like desire or it's like a dangerous thing. Like as if I'm just giving myself permission, like, oh yeah, you don't want to work. Well, like, of course you don't want to work. Like nobody likes to work, but you're supposed to work. So you should be doing that, you know? And yeah, you may not want to live there, but it's a good school, right? So like go to that school, go, go to the most prestigious one. Where at the end of the day, when I see myself in Taiwan, it's like, well, I kind of want to be in Taipei. I kind of want to be near the city. Um, you know, I, I've been there. I know the area. When I think about what I already enjoy about Taiwan, that's kind of like what I want to do. Um, but I guess because, you know, it's actually kind of weird as I'm saying this out loud. This sounds like a weird thought. But I was just going to say, when I give myself permission to do the things that I want, there's this kind of a release of pressure and anxiety. And I know that that sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but the, but the point I'm trying to make is that feels dangerous to me. Because again, if I'm operating from a place or if my operating philosophy is like there's something wrong with me and the things that I actually feel like I want to do are actually not good for me or somehow self-destructive, the idea of me giving myself permission to do the things that I want to do feels just that. It feels self-destructive. But I have to admit there's you know, as I was in therapy and I was talking about, well, yeah, well, maybe I actually don't go to grad school right away. Maybe I just, you know, I know I'll be in Taiwan in February for three months, continuing my, continuing my language study. Why don't I just go there? And at the end of the day, you know, I actually don't really even have to go to grad school. You know, I can just stay in Taiwan and just continue my language study until I get a better sense of like where my skills are at, what I might want to do. And all of a sudden this pressure starts to lift from me. And I was sort of taken back to this period I was at, like right when I was finishing up at community college and transferring to, to, um, to UC Berkeley. And when I first went to school, I was a psychology major. But I knew in my gut, like, ah, for the next two years, I'm just not going to be happy if I keep studying psychology. I just didn't really see myself getting through the next two years if I was just taking psychology classes. And so in my mind, I had this burgeoning idea of like, well, you know, I really like reading books and... You know, obviously I had this interest in Chinese philosophy, like maybe that would be something that's more sustainable or more or more interesting. And I remember going into a therapy session and that kind of came up and I, I kind of like half-heartedly sort of mentioned that, but my therapist very enthusiastically said, well, then that's what you need to do. And although it immediately felt like this, sorry, I just clicked, kicked my desk here, but as, although that felt like, um, immediately felt like a relief to me and like this weight was lifted off my shoulder, I mean, I decided very quickly, like within that session, I was like, oh, well, it's obviously clear I'm going to be changing my major. <laughs> it also felt like a dangerous idea, you know? Like there are these moments where my therapist is on the one hand being very validating and very affirming and kind of giving me permission to do the thing that I, I think I want to do in my heart of hearts, but I also don't trust them, you know? I think there are people in the world who are very skeptical of therapy as if it's this kind of like rent-a-friend program where you just kind of pay someone to be your cheerleader and they're actually not going to be very discriminating because it's not in their financial interest, right, to be very discriminating against you. They're just going to kind of validate whatever you say and encourage you to do things no matter what they are, even if it's to your detriment, right? And some people, like, actually, this is going to sound insane, <laughs> but I saw this, uh, I only watched a little bit of it, but there was this video of Andrew Tate, who I'm sure you have strong feelings about, and I have a strong repulsion to for the most part. 
but he's sitting with a, a therapist or a psychologist. I'm not sure how the person branded themselves. Even as I'm saying this, I'm not sure why I'm bringing this up. Oh, I think it was, you know, the premise of the video was this kind of like ostensibly not adversarial, but as if it was kind of, it, it, they sort of framed this video, this conversation between them as kind of a yin and yang type thing, as if these two people have opposing views. As the conversation went on, it kind of became clear that this therapist or psychiatrist or whatever they are is actually like an Andrew Tate fan and was actually like kind of affirming and validating things that Andrew Tate was saying that I thought were kind of disturbing. But the point is, is that I got a earful of Andrew Tate talking about how they're their own therapist and how therapy is for weak people and how he doesn't believe in the idea of depression and that yada, 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 yada. So I, I, I get a earful of that in life a lot, especially out here in the Bay Area. You have a lot of people who like are very much into self-optimization and like not throwing pity parties for yourself and like picking yourself up by your own bootstraps and that kind of stuff. And although I don't agree with that, right? Like, although that's not really my, I was going to say, not my operating philosophy. The point is that even though that's not really like my belief system or my own personal worldview, that that still is a part of me, you know. And I'm sure that that gets validated by a lot of other inputs in my life. But the the point is, is that, um, you know, even though I have these moments where someone's like validating something that I feel. There's also that golem inside me, you know, that like, oh, my precious, like, oh, don't let go of that thing, right? Like, if I let go of this pressure, like, I'm sort of giving up on myself in some way. But the point is, is like, flash forward two years later, changing my major was the best thing I could have done. I mean, I can't tell you, I've never had a moment where I was sitting in a psychology class where I was like, man, this is where I'm supposed to be. I mean, I, th I found them very interesting. But I never once felt like, oh, man, this is like resonating with me on like a fundamental level. You know, I'm really lighting up as I think about it. And it may sound insane, but like I have had countless experiences like that in my, you know, whether it's my literature classes or my East Asian religion, thought and culture classes. You know, I'm in this lecture now that I'm taking this class on Confucius and uh, so far, none of the information is new for me, just because this is all material I've really digested even before I returned to school. But I know it's new for a lot of people in the class. And although I can tell half of them are like falling asleep, I really, I feel myself getting excited, you know? And, um, and I guess the thing that, yeah, so I guess as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, well, then what's the mystery? Like, why are we even talking about this? It's clear that you know what you want. The point I'm trying to make is, is that one of the struggles that I face, and maybe you experience the same thing, is it's when I'm in a vacuum, when I'm left to my own devices, you know, if it's just me, it all makes sense. I actually know what I want to do. I know what excites me. I know what feels worthwhile to me. But just by virtue of living in, you know, the world, you know, I guess I feel this like, deep insecurity and ambivalence about giving myself permission to pursue and do the things that I want to do because I, it's not clear to me what practical value or currency they have in the real world. You know, and that's not nothing. Like, right at the end of the day, we have to feed ourselves and we have to get by in the world and we have to land somewhere. But it's just that I just, I, it's constantly reminded that I make my life exponentially more difficult than it has to be because of some imagined voice that I inject into my own psyche that really doesn't even exist. I mean, I'm not saying it comes from nowhere, but I'm just saying, I'm just like torturing myself, you know, with this, with this criticizing voice that I just, I just feel like life would be exponentially easier, would be so much simpler if I just let it go, you know? And actually letting go is actually the perfect word for it because it's like, as I'm thinking about these grad school applications, you know, even saying it feels dangerous, but I'm like, well, maybe I actually don't go to grad school right away. Maybe I just go to Taiwan and continue focusing on my language and let that experience kind of tell me what the next step will be. I immediately feel this release of pressure. And, you know, that's a good thing. And, and, there's a there's a voice that's like cautioning me you know as if that's some that's somehow a dangerous thing
But yeah, freedom is actually an important word that comes to mind for me. Um, it's actually been contributing to my depression a little bit. We might unpack it. <clears throat> but one of the things, like, I, I stumbled on this documentary on YouTube. It's like an hour-long piece from the BBC on Jacob Collier. I hope I'm saying that right. Jacob Collier, Jacob Collier. I don't know. You probably, you m might know who he is. He's like a very talented singer, musician, multi-instrumentalist, harmony, genius, right? And although his music is not really like my music, like I don't listen to it for entertainment, Jacob Collier is one of these like towering uh, geniuses uh, who like is very shaming to me because I look at someone like that and I feel like, oh, that's who I should have been, <laughs> you know? Like Jacob Collier is like everything I've ever wanted to be, which is just like an undeniable savant slash genius slash best in the field for whatever he's doing, you know? He has perfect pitch. He has this crazy encyclopedic understanding of music theory. Um, he plays every instrument in the book. You know, it's a, everything is just seems and looks very effortless for him. And he just seems like a really great guy. He's very endearing. Um, so not only is he uh, incredibly talented, he's also like benevolent as well. You know, which to me is like, you know, we have this idea that like all geniuses have to be like tortured and evil. But then like you have someone like Jacob Collier who's like, oh, this dude is a legit genius and they seem benevolent, which to me is like, you know, so basically Jacob Poirier is like everything I've ever wanted to be. And the real reason I've kind of stayed away, I mean, although like I have to admit, like I don't think his music is necessarily my thing. I also have to admit that I see people going crazy for him and that is actually kind of shaming for me. So I kind of steer clear of his music anyway, just because it just makes me feel bad about myself. Um, but I stumbled on this documentary about Jacob Collier's life and I just ended up watching it and it's very, very good. But again, it's also very hard to watch because I feel like, you know, I am sitting here like in my, my golem mentality, like, oh, that should have been me or something like that. Um, but the, in, the really important thing is that it led me to this like eight hour long video, which I'm sort of chipping away at in chunks. He did like a live stream around the time of his uh, around the time of the pandemic to raise money for his touring band and crew. And one thing that he's known for doing is people will send him videos. I think on his Patreon, will send him videos of them singing a melody or something like that. And he does these crazy harmonizations. You know, he'll add like eighty voices to it and just turn this kind of simple iPhone video that somebody filmed of them singing. 15 seconds of a song and he turns it into this like incredible orchestration um and so he did this like eight hour stream where he just does as many of those as possible as he's like you know asking the viewers and the people he's streaming to to donate money so that he can give it to his touring band who um you know this was done around the time of the pandemic so yeah they those people are basically out of a job but the coolest part about this video is not just that you know the end product is always very amazing the thing that I get absolutely swept up in in this video, and I was watching this last night, I went to bed at like two in the morning because I just couldn't turn this thing off, was watching him work on his computer in Logic. And as he's coming up with these orchestrations, it kind of like reminded me of the producer I used to work with, Gowan Matthews, who, you know, the creative process for me is always very um, torturous. And like, it's me like brooding over a notebook and trying to be meticulous and exact and perfect. And it's just like, it's just a very not fun process, right? It's like I'm wringing myself like a bar rag and it's just, it's, it's awful. Like the initial moment of inspiration is always very cool, but then the rest of it is just hard, tedious work. And um, I'm always very exhausted at the end of it. And I'm not pretending that the creative process is not difficult for Jacob Collier at any time. But when you watch him work on these harmonizations, he is just completely free. And he's like working in Logic and he's clearly, I mean, he's mastered the software. He has his workflow figured out. He's working in it very quickly. And you're just watching him stew and marinate and ride the wave of inspiration where he's not second guessing. I mean, first of all, he already has this repository of, uh, of ability and capacity and knowledge and whatever that he's already, you know, I guess, yeah, how do I word this? I guess in other times I've talked about like the Sengi, which is like this animal in Africa. I first stumbled on it, like an ex-girlfriend of mine, we were like house sitting and probably getting high and like watching Netflix and we were watching this nature show. And one of the animals that they were kind of highlighting was the Sengi, 
which is like this animal that just sort of spends 75% of its day just like ma- maintaining these little pathways throughout its habitat and like keeping them clear. And the only reason it does that is so when a predator sort of strikes or when it has to, it has these clear, dependable pathways that it can sprint down to safety, right? And I thought, oh, like that's kind of who I am. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that Jacob Collier already has like this repository of understanding so that when it's time to get to work, when it's time to be in the sauce, you know, he's just like ready to go. And so you just watch him in logic and he's just like stacking these vocal parts and drawing on his whatever and he's like throwing down and he's not being judgmental. And it's just like, it's fun to watch because you watch him literally having fun creating. It's playful, you know? And it was just like, it's like watching someone just like be free and like flying. You know, in a way, as I'm saying this, it reminds me of like seeing David Copperfield fly when I was a kid. You know, it's like one, it's this very convincing illusion of someone doing, someone doing something superhuman so that you just go, oh, wow, like what I wouldn't give to be that way or to be able to do that. And that's like the exact same thing that I have when I'm watching this video of Jacob Collier, like working in logic, harmonizing these things where he's just like throwing down these crazy harmonies, but it's just the process of watching him work and the speed at which he works that I realize, oh man, I've been doing it wrong, like my whole life. You know, my whole life, I've been trying to be this like perfect person. And like, so much of my creative process has been about like, making a masterpiece or, you know, you know, it's just this like tedium, the slow, tedious process. And just one, drawing on my experience with working with my former producer, Gowan Matthews, who was just like, let's just do it. You know, I would come in with these songs, you know, just voice and guitar. There were, you know, skeletons of songs that took me forever to sort of, you know, to sort of ring out of myself. And we would go in the studio and by the end of day one, we would have most of the song done. We would have most of the other parts just sort of nailed down, you know. And, you know, for at, at first that was a kind of a weird process for me to be a part of, you know, because I, I wanted to like slam the brakes and like take a lot of time and make sure we were doing the right thing but like for him i could tell he would like push back on that he's like no man we just got to keep going we got to keep going we got to lay it down and if something's not working that's fine we'll just go on to the next thing you know it was just always about doing what you wanted to do in the moment to not impede the creative process to keep the momentum going forward and uh i'm embarrassed to say that that was so foreign to me you know for me it was like if you encounter an obstacle you just bang your head against the wall until it sort of moves, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, seeing Jacob Collier do this thing was just like being free, you know? And so why am I going down this road? Um, I guess on the one hand, I guess I'm just trying to like talk about this insecurity I feel when I feel like I see that, when I see someone who is free. And it also, it also goes back to this idea of creative courage and creative confidence, which is something I've struggled with my entire life. But to see someone who's in that, You know, it's kind of shaming to see somebody, one who's younger than you, but also just anybody at all who you feel like they really, it really clarifies for you, not only where you sit in the pecking order, right? Which is like, you're not shit compared to this person. It's a bit like that moment in the movie Goodwill Hunting, where like there's the older math professor, and he has this kind of poignant moment where he says to uh, Matt Damon's character, he's like, I wish I never would have met you. I could have just gone throughout my life thinking I was the best, you know, resting on my laurels. He has this like uh, Fields Medal, I think is like the, I don't know, the Pulitzer equivalent for mathematicians or something. But it was like meeting this guy really clarified for him how he really wasn't shit. And there was somebody else walking around in the world who was like, you know, everything that he actually wanted to be, like the real deal was out there. That's kind of how I feel about Jacob Collier. But the other part is like, that you've been doing it wrong. Not just that you're not shit compared to them, but you actually kind of made a critical error way back in the beginning that actually kind of set you down this path that you that felt like the right thing. This is the, this is the important part. It felt like the right thing, but it actually had nothing to do with what was best for you. Oh man, here we go. Here's where all the insight comes together. Isn't that life for so many of us? 
the most insidious part of like you know and sometimes people roll their eyes at this word but the most insidious part of our traumas right and some of the most formative experiences we've had in our life is not just that they wreak havoc on our lives in ways that are like overtly chaotic right like someone who's just like lost in the throes of addiction because they face some horrible trauma and that's the coping mechanism that they develop like that's obvious Right, that's something that's in somebody's life. That's re- that you know, it's obviously like a bull in a china shop. Like, of course, that's maladaptive or something like that. If that's the right word, it's self-destructive. But the most insidious thing that we inherit is those parts of ourselves that we experience as our virtues, that we experience as good things. But it's actually it's it's that operating system it's that framework it's that worldview that's actually our undoing it's not that we're doing good because of that mindset we're doing good in spite if we're doing good at all we're doing good in spite of that mindset you know i mean there's so many people who like go throughout their lives and they're like i gotta get the I got to go to the right school and i gotta get the right grades and i gotta get the right job and i gotta get the right income and i gotta marry the right person and at the end of all that, I'll be able to sit back and I will feel good. I've done the, quote, right thing. Now, this sounds like kind of a stone college kid rant, right? Like this, the way I'm sort of framing this is not, uh, is nothing new. But it's not, a, it's not a terrible example in that it, it frames it well, which is for most of us who've grown up, we've all like looked up in our lives and saw ourselves either having accomplished or on the cusp of accomplishing the thing that we were supposed to want and it doesn't make us happy. You know? And it's so disappointing to me that I can sit here and say this, right? And I can know that to be true. And I can also look at my life and think of like a dozen other times in my life I've been at that crossroads and have always benefited from making the decision that is not predicated on what I should do, but what I want to do, even if I don't know where it's going to lead me. In some ways, especially if I don't know where it's going to lead me. But I just have to trust the process. I have to trust that it's going to take me somewhere better. And it's just endlessly disappointing to me that I live my life in this like Groundhog Day scenario of like, you know, it's like how many times do I have to keep learning the same lesson? You know? I mean, before my therapy session today, part of my frustration was like, I'm sick of being me. Like, I'm sick of having to go into the same therapy session every week and talk about the same bullshit. And it's not always like the same insights. I mean, the frustrating part is we always arrive at the same insights. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going in knowing that what I'm actually sitting with and what I'm actually needing to talk about is the same shit I've been talking about for 14 years. You know? And for me, it's this cycle of like, you know, this, this very dangerous uh, oscillation and uncertainty and, and ambivalence between want and should. You know? Because it's, again, I'm talking about it in very black and white terms, right? Of, you know, oh, the thing that you should do is the bad thing. The thing that you want to do is what you, what you ironically, should do. <laughs> is what you really should do. The real should, the capital should, right? But I guess I'm trying to highlight, and I think... A lot of us would do better if we thought about this. That the really insidious part is that we experience the self-destructive operating system as a good thing. And to actually let go of that. Although there are, you know, again, it is there are there is a moment of kind of you know release or the pressure somehow gets relieved, but that feels dangerous. You know. There's just, you know, there's just another voice that's kind of seeing you kind of letting go of the status quo of what you're supposed to be doing. And it just feels, again, it's like the bumpers coming out of the bowling alley. It's like you could roll a gutter ball. You know, that's scary. Hmm. Yeah, poignant stuff. Yeah, speaking of not forgetting. Yeah, these are the types of things I wish I could remember. And yet I have to learn the same lesson over and over again. 
So yeah, where does this lead me? It leaves me in this kind of scary spot where I'm seriously considering, you know, not applying to grad school and just giving myself permission to truly just chill the fuck out in this last semester, trust that I'm going to be in Taiwan in February, and just let that progress, let that, um, you know, let that encounter, let that situation, let that experience kind of shape what I'm going to do. But the scary part, again, is it feels directionless. You know, there's a part of me that more than anything now, and I've probably been saying this for like a couple of years now, but it's like every experience I have, I tell myself that that's somehow going to be formative for me. That's going to help me kind of get closer or draw closer to the epiphany of when I decide like what I want to be when I grow up, which is like an awful thing for like a 38 year old to say, but you know, I, it's like I'm waiting for the clouds to part. And, you know, as much as I'm talking about like, oh, every time I've done what I actually want to do, it's led me in the right direction. I have to admit that I'm still kind of committed to this process, this exploration of like, you know, just kind of following my heart and seeing where it takes me. And I'm just kind of, I'm still waiting for the payoff, you know? I'm still waiting for a moment where I kind of see things coming together in a way where I really feel like, oh man, this really, this really, I'm really happy that I made that decision like 10 steps ago, you know, and it's not just my major, it's a lot of things, you know, part of it is romantic, you know, I've been dating a lot recently, I had a date last Saturday, which was not great, (laughs) it wasn't awful, I've actually never had, now that I think about it, I've never had like a catastrophic date. Um, or even the ones that weren't great, you know, it's not like, I don't know, I hear horror stories, like, women will say, like, well, I went on a date with a guy who, like, I don't know, picked up another chick, like, while we were out, or something like that, or I've, I've just never had, like, you know, I, I don't know, I've just never had those type of catastrophic dates. I mean, I've had dates where, like, I've embarrassed myself, or I felt like I didn't put in a good performance, or, um, you know, I've shown up, like, I had this date in Taiwan where I sh- showed up, and the person did not resemble their photos whatsoever, but at the end of the day, I can sit down and like have a conversation with most people. And even though I may not want to move forward with them romantically, it's it's totally fine. And that's kind of what this date was. But again, I am, you know, I'm eager for the moment where I either meet meet the person where I say, and this is not to disparage my last partner, it's just this idea of like, I made a decision to end a relationship that could have, you know, gone the distance and it was because I had this ambivalence because I, you know, for reasons I couldn't necessarily articulate, it was just what I wanted. I knew that it wasn't the right time. And so I made a leap of faith and ended things and trusted that I would look up at some point in the future and realize I had made the right decision, you know? And so I guess whether it's romantic, whether it's my major, whether it's the course of my life in general, I'm kind of waiting for things to come together where I can kind of look back and go, oh man, I made the right decision. I think the sad part, you know, in a way, I kind of already have everything I need. Meaning, when we look at, you know, if, I, if I'm waiting for the kind of cinematic moment where the clouds part and I sort of have my victory moment, I'll, I could be, you know, um, uh, pre- pre- prepare to be disappointed, is what I'm saying. But I think there's a way in which this kind of mindset that I'm talking about, this this constant fear about the future or this kind of golem voice that keeps kind of like... I don't know, the party pooper voice that kind of lives in my mind all the time that kind of destroys, you know, even these fleeting moments of joy that I have. Like, hey, I'm really enjoying making music right now. Or, hey, I'm really enjoying, like, not having to go to work today. Or, hey, I'm really enjoying, like, watching this video on YouTube. There's another, like, golem in the corner of my mind that's going, like, hey, man, you're wasting your time. Like, you should be doing something more productive or this or that. You know, it really, like, spoils the moment, you know? Like, even when I'm sitting there in class and I'm going, hey, this is like so fascinating to me and I'm so glad I'm learning about this and this is exactly the type of thing that I wanted to be learning more about when I returned to school. There's another voice that says, yeah, but what is it? How are you going to monetize it? (laughs) Like, what is this for? Where is this leading you? And I'm not saying that those are, you know, entirely stupid questions, but maybe they're questions for another time. (laughs) Like, maybe it should be enough to just kind of enjoy yourself in this moment. Right, because there's something about that voice that it it sort of comes in the guise or the costume of productivity, 
or reasonableness or something. But it's I, I, I don't know that it's ever really helped me. And it also, I guess in some ways too, it does, I guess it sort of discredits this idea of like, or it's just interesting to think about, like, why isn't the input that I'm getting from like, hey, I enjoy this. This is interesting to me. This is the type of thing I want to invest more time in. Like, shouldn't that be the only answer I need? Like they say, like, find something you love and you never work a day in your life. You know, I'm not saying that, <clears throat> I'm not saying that everything is going to make you a fortune, but it's just sort of interesting that that voice is like, I don't know if I'm how to word this except to say the voice that is the, the sort of ever skeptical voice or um, the cautionary voice that's like, it's sort of like asking me to def to have to have some delayed gratification when actually the prize is like right in front of me. Does that make sense? As if somehow by following the Gollum voice down whatever path it's trying to lead me, then I'm going to have some eventual satisfaction or joy when I'm actually experiencing that in the moment. I'm actually getting it right now from this thing that I'm that is right in front of me, whether it's the video or making music or reading the Chinese philosophy versus a psychology textbook or something like that. And I'm not talking about the kind of enjoyment that, like, you know, sitting sitting down and eating a bag of Doritos while you play video games. Like, there is a way in which, like, yeah, there are, delayed gratification is a thing, right? So, like, not eating the bag of Doritos and maybe doing 30 minutes of exercise, that's the type of thing where, yeah, it may not sound like fun in the moment, but those are things that you should invest in because they do have long-term benefits. That's one thing. But the general input of your life, of like, how do you enjoy spending your time? What do you enjoy doing? What is a worthwhile thing for you to pursue? It's just interesting to me that I I'm, I'm sort of am getting feedback in the moment that like, hey, you like this. This is fulfilling. This is rewarding. That should be good enough right now. But it's like, what am I waiting for? Why can't I just let this be enough? Does that make sense? Do you experience that? What is that? I mean, I'm looking at how I'm approaching this whole semester and, <clears throat> you know, like today is a very chill day. I had like one lecture I had to go to. I mean, I'm basically taking four classes, plus I have to be working on this honors thesis, which I honestly have to start thinking about seriously. <laughs> um, but it's like two of the classes I'm taking are pass, no pass. And I put so much pressure on myself to like, oh, I got to do all these readings. It's like, hey, man, let yourself chill. You don't need to do a work in that class you really don't because even if you do you're it's not going to count you're just going to get a pass in the class you honestly just need to pass you just you know it's it, when you think about it you i mean unless it was a, a topic you were really interested in right and the knowledge for knowledge knowledge for knowledge is sake is not bad but if you actually go for the a plus you're kind of doing yourself a disservice <laughs> Right? It's not going to affect your GPA. You're still just going to get a pass. So whether you get a C minus, whether you get a 71% or a 100%, or I should say, if you, I guess I guess 70 is the lowest you could get to pass the class. Whether you get a 70% or 100%, it's going to be the same. So, you know, would I feel comfortable doing 70% work? Probably not. But it's like, just do a cursory, you know, cur how do you say, it? a cursory reading of the homework, show up to the lecture, you can probably trust that you'll do fine. No need to crucify yourself about it, right? So just chill. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, it's been a while since we've had uh, 
a big bit of silence in one of these things. I don't know if you remember, but in our past iteration and previous entries, I think we've had up to like five minutes of silence at some points, but, you know, we'll see if we can avoid that. Like I said, I told myself that if I run out of things to say, I'd let myself finish, but I feel like we're so close to the end here that I want to find something else to maybe light on so we can just kind of get to the finish line here. <clears throat> But I don't know. Maybe that's just another form of senseless pressure I'm putting on myself. Yeah, who knows? Maybe we can just sit here in silence together. I was saying, actually, <clears throat> as I was on this date, that wasn't going well. I do remember them kind of asking me, just because it had kind of come up in our conversations before meeting in person the first time, was that I was sort of ending my time at my current job. And it was I was actually very, you know, kind of touched that they remembered um, when they asked about it. But um, I, I sort of realized it was true as I was saying it. But I was saying it's it's a little bit of, it's, a, it's it's a little bit strange one to be thirty eight and like be stepping away from your job. One, just because I feel insecure about that. But also, it kind of clarifies for me that this was actually a big part of my identity. You know, like the job that I had, even though it wasn't necessarily something that I knew was my calling or something I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I got a lot of, I, can't, I don't know, like value or a meaning out of like the type of work that I did. You know, it was sort of mental health related. It was the type of thing that when people heard about it, they were kind of interested in. You know, and it was also a very kind of convenient way, even though I had my frustrations about the job itself, it was kind of a convenient way to present myself to people that also kind of communicated like my values or my interests or something like that, you know, and like not having that, it all, yeah, it just felt like I kind of lost a way, again, I, as I'm saying this, I feel like the theme is like how other people experience us, you know, <laughs> like if I'm the type of person who values like what I can demonstrate to other people or what other people will experience as valuable or meaningful or whatever, I do feel like I lost a little bit of that, I don't know, street cred or something like that. You know, if I'm not, you know, the me who is, you know, either a crisis counselor or is training the volunteer crisis counselors that we have, you know, if I'm not working alongside mental health, like, if I'm just a student, like, who am I? You know? And actually, I'm scared to go down this path because this is the type of thing I actually don't want to say, like, to other people. It's something that I just, like, kind of want to think myself. But I was actually thinking as I was watching this Jacob Collier video, I was like, oh, if, you know, because I'm saying, like, that is the person I always feel like I should have been. You know, like, uh, real or imagined or whatever. I do feel like, I treat myself and think about myself as like, if I had lived the life I was supposed to live, if I wasn't fettered by, you know, whatever adverse experiences I had in my life or whatever, that I had some kind of talent or gift that if I was just had the opportunity to like, you know, get, really give myself over to it, that I just would have accomplished some, so much more than I did or that I, I'm capable of doing now. You know, I'm somehow weighed down by my experiences and the ways that I've been like damaged and all this sort of stuff. Um, uh, where am I going with this? Um, ah, yes. I'm thinking. So uh, yeah, I guess as I'm watching that, I'm thinking, Oh, so, so who am I? And if I'm not that person, who am I? Oh, I'm just me. I'm just the 38 year old student. Who's like not working. You know, who's like just going to school. And I just think like, how is that going to be enough? Does that make sense? Like, I think we all live with this idea. And I think my therapist once I've said like, that is the super ego. But we all live with this like personified version of ourselves, this idealized version of ourselves that we kind of live alongside. And in a way, we're kind of in a race with them. 
But we have this like idealized version of ourselves that is like living the life that we should have lived or could have lived or is the life that is potential. And we're always kind of living imperfectly alongside of it and falling short of it. And that is the standard that we always compare ourselves to. And we make ourselves miserable by doing it. But there's this idea, like, if I just work harder, or if I dig in deep, or if I finally give myself permission to do the thing, or if I finally, whatever, that I'll somehow bloom or develop into this person that I always should have become. But there are moments that I have, especially as I get older, where it's like, I'm sitting across or watching a video of someone like Jacob Collier, and I'm seeing someone who is just in another stratosphere of talent and whatever, uh, and it's just apparent you're just never gonna be that you're just never gonna be not just as good as them as what they're doing but you just know in your heart like I'm not that person I'll just never be the best in my field I'll never do this like for example I also watched this documentary called The Alpinist or The Alpinist I'm not sure how you want to pronounce it and I want to be careful here because I don't want to spoil things for you you should just watch it but it's about um you know, um, a mountaineer, a climber, uh, an alpinist, literally, a young person who would just do these. I mean, a lot of us have seen the documentary Free Solo with what's his name, like Alex Hubble or whatever his name is. Free Solo, some shit, right? <laughs> it's a great documentary. It's very harrowing. It's very hard to watch at times because it's very scary. Um, this kid does something that's like he, 10 times crazier. He does the same exact shit, but he does it in like on ice and like in the mountains. It's just absolutely insane. But you think, ah, and this is actually another connection I'm making. <clears throat> you look at people like Jacob Collier and you look at this young alpinist and you think, what do they have in common? It's interesting to me that they were both kind of raised by single mothers, but they had parents in their life who encouraged them to be who they were. You know, if they didn't want to do well in school, their parents recognized that they had this, you know, this talent or this inclination in a very specific direction. And their parents encourage them to actually do that thing. You know, as I was kind of coming up in, you know, in music, uh, there's a there's a very sort of practical example I could use, but I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't know if I want to call this person out or whatever. But a less sort of uh, obvious example or somebody I don't really have access to, uh, basically I'm trying to say, I've, I've met a few people in my life who I've sat across from and I've been like, oh shit, you're the real deal. One of them that just came to mind right now is actually Jack Conti from pa- from Patreon. I've sat across from that guy and been like, holy shit, you actually have something I don't have. This kind of like, be- just a fundamental belief in yourself, right? And I don't pretend to know anything about Jack Conti, but I wouldn't be surprised if he actually had supportive parents or something like that. But the, the person I was originally thinking of was actually John Bellion, was this dude who I opened up for a couple times, and I probably talked about him in other instances of this thing. But it was also very clear once I got to know that guy a little bit that actually his parents were incredibly supportive of him. And actually, if he wanted to stop doing music tomorrow and wanted to do something else, they would have just supported him, right? They were really just all about him drawing closer and following his heart and like doing the thing he felt called to do. And that gave him a kind of courage or whatever. Like, you know, he had the wind at his back to kind of go deeper and deeper into this thing to just see where it took him. And if the BBC documentary can be believed, it seemed like Jacob Collier has that as well. You know, he just had a mother who always fostered him to kind of go deeper into this thing. And whether or not it made sense in the world or whether or not it could be monetized or whether or not it mattered in the, quote, real world, he could just go deeper and deeper into this thing. And, you know, this is going to sound crazy from someone who's had a lot of privileges in their life. In some ways, I've had more privileges than most people. But I do feel this kind of like this this toxic inheritance of like not being allowed, not just as like a person, but I mean, even though my even though I was supported creatively in many ways, I do feel like you know it, it, it's hurtful for, for me to see that sometimes because I think it, when I consider my own disposition, and I think if I was a parent without any prompting, I'd like to think that that's the type of parent that I would be just because it just seems so easy and so obvious. But the fact that I didn't have that is just very sad to me. And as I'm thinking about this kind of idealized version of myself, there is a way in which I think like, gosh, if my life had been different, 
gosh, I could have been something else, maybe a lot better. (laughs) You know, there's this thing in life where everybody says, like, I don't regret anything about my life because it made me into the person that I am today. Right? And that's true. And that's great. And, 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 And I actually don't want to discount that because, you know, at the end of the day, life is just what it is. And we're lucky for the insights that we do have. And it's true that we wouldn't have them if it wasn't for our experiences. And yet... There's, it also just seems empirically true to me that there are many things that although we're happy that they happened because they led to certain insights, you might also be able to make the case that our lives would be better if they hadn't happened to us at all. And as I say that, that's kind of a bit of a, I mean, you could really torture yourself with that, you know, but I guess, I don't know, maybe all of these things are true at the same time. But I guess the thing I'm sitting with right now is, since we can't undo the past, what are we going to do with the time that we have? How are we going to let this be enough? I mean, every single person who hears this, actually, every single person who sits across from Jacob Collier is not going to be him, right? Like, it just there just are exceptional people in the world. Like, there are the Beethovens, and there are the Buddhas, right? And there are... There are just people who, for whatever reason, and maybe it is for reasons they have no control over, aside from their intrinsic talent, you know, we don't decide what parents we have or whatever. It could just be that the planets aligned so that this person was in such circumstances that their talent was fostered so that they could become the person that they are. Most of us are never going to be that. Most of us just have to be uh, the consumers, right, or the audience to those individuals. But even if that's true, right, even if we're all just kind of relegated to the faceless masses of the consumers and the audience and the and the whatever, we're, we're never going to be like the shooting stars. Like, how do we let that be enough? Because we can't just kind of like go hang out with the golems in the corners of our minds and just say, yeah, it all sucks. I mean, when I worked on the crisis line, one of the most, I don't know if frustrating is the right words, but in some ways, some of the most poignant conversations I would have, the, the ones that just felt especially challenging was when I was speaking with someone who, not that they would ever articulate it or express it this way or that they even felt this way overtly or was aware of this, but it was almost as if sometimes they weren't going to give up on their position until I sort of gave up as well and like drove over to the house and just like crawled into bed with them and just like gave up myself, you know? And that's just kind of a recipe for... You know, that's that's not that's not going to work, right? You know, we have to make the most of what we have. We're not going to be able to change the past. You know, but what do we do with what we have here? And I'm trying. This may sound like a forced way to bring it back to the beginning, but I'm also seeing that we're almost out of time here. But maybe it just begins with like having the courage to. You know, think less about what you should do and give yourself permission to do the things that you want to do. You know, because even if we can't necessarily get to the mountaintop, I don't know that we're ever going to regret at least getting at least partway down the path, right? Like, uh, you could chill at base camp. You could say, ah, fuck it, I'll never reach the summit. I'll just sort of chill here back at base camp. But I don't know that you'd ever regret seeing a little bit Right? Even if you only get to see a little bit of the mountain path, like I don't think you'll I don't think you'll regret making that little bit of a journey. You know what I mean? So maybe that's the goal. Even if we never make it to the summit, there's no harm in at least uh setting out on the journey, right? I don't know. I'm trying to think of a super poetic and poignant way to end that, but uh I'm not sure that it exists. So I think we'll just have to leave it at that. I'll I'll, I'll leave it to you to sort of fill in the fill in the blanks as far as that goes so anyway maybe a little forced maybe a little contrived but uh hey it's called good enough for a reason i'm glad we made it to the end here um yeah again i'm sorry i forgot about this but you know better late than never right um and so yeah i'll i'll certainly try to be better about recording this on time and making sure that i get this to you um when it's expected um until then thank you for listening thank you for your time And ciao for now.